and I've been trying to persuade you to come at these things in, in a good order, to, to begin with the simplicities of the gospel and then to look at the, the details. So let's uh, come back to Ephesians 2, 4 to 10 again, and let me continue to pursue that line of thought for the moment. So I was saying that uh, there are three big things that really stand out when you read the New Testament. Salvation is Jesus. It's not a system. It's not an ethic. It's not uh, turning to, be, to, to live a good life now. It's, it's not a religious experience. It's not a coming forward to the meeting and rolling on the floor under, under uh, some spiritual power. It's not intellect. It's not mastering theology. Well, all those things might come into it, but, but that's not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is God gives you Jesus. He gives you a person. And uh, look at it here in Ephesians. Paul begins by speaking of the, the problem of man. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were once walking in sin. We once belonged to the world, following the course of this world. We once were under Satan, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We once were under the power of the flesh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and of mind. And we were under God's anger, and we were by nature children of wrath, which means we're under the anger of God. God hates sin. We had all of these problems, the world, the flesh, the devil, even God himself. Everything was, as it were, against us, and we were dead. We were far, far away from God. There was no life in us. That's, that's the Bible's description of, of the ordinary person as he or she is born. We are by nature. Notice the uh, words there, by nature. We are by nature. We are by birth. We are by the way in which we come into this world, children of wrath. And then he says, but. Oh, the great, the great word of the Bible is the word but. But. The Bible's always saying, but. And suddenly it, bring, it paints a kind of dark picture. Then it says, but. And God, as it were, steps in. You have it all over the place. Remember Paul in Romans says we were uh, condemned and every mouth is stopped and the whole world is guilty before God. But now a righteousness. He always comes in with this word but. God likes to butt into our, our sort of a deadness and our plight. And this is the gospel. The gospel is when you, you see all that is true of yourself and you see how awful and terrible it is. Then you say, ah, but God. God is there and he has something to say to us, and he answers this terrible plight that we are in. And so Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy. And it's all connected with Christ. We were made alive together with Christ. It's Christ's life that comes into us. We are in the heavenly places, in Christ. There's the exceeding riches of his kindness towards us in Christ. Everything is in Jesus. We are his workmanship created in Christ in Christ Jesus. Everything is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is a person. And when you're preaching, I'm referring to preachers a lot because I'm concerned about the the way in which we preach and the way in which the church functions as those who are responsible for proclaiming the message to the world. That's why I'm doing that. Um, When you're a preacher, you must be careful not just to be describing the gospel 
or just praising the gospel, what, what, what the old preachers used to call praising the gospel. There's a difference between praising the gospel and preaching the gospel. You can be saying, well, there's this, there's this, justification, forgiveness, there's a purpose to life, and you're, as it were, describing things. But in preaching, we're not describing things. We often do, and we're tempted to just be describing. But we're not just describing things. We are presenting a person. Jesus is here and there's a person who wants to deal with you. There's a person who wants to be your saviour. This is how we, we, we preach. It's, there's a person, and Jesus is telling us, believe in him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're, we're speaking of a person. And God's way of saving us is to give us Christ. He gives us a person. And uh, out, of, out of his fullness, John chapter 1, verse 16, out of his fullness, out of every single thing that's in the Lord Jesus, he gives us salvation. Out of his fullness have we all received grace upon grace, or a better translation would be one grace instead of another grace, because the law was given through Moses, but grace came. God was coming in his grace in the person of Jesus. Grace came into this world through the Lord Jesus. And when the Philippian jailer asks what to do to be saved, Paul says, believe on, put your faith on, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Or think how it's put in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 where Paul is dealing with these Greeks in Corinth who are so proud of their wisdom. And Paul says, don't boast in your wisdom. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God, Christ whom God has made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. Everything is given to us. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our final redemption at the end. And so, so as it is written, let anyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. You're boasting in a person. You're not boasting in just religiosity. You're boasting in a person. You're glorying in a person who's become yours. And our, the invitation of the gospel is to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, he becomes everything to us. He is our fullness. We, in him, the whole fullness of the Godhead dwells as in a body, says Colossians chapter 2, and you have come to fullness of life in him. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so dwell in him. Salvation is, is, is being given a person and dwelling in a person from that point on. Salvation is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is Christ. There's a Griffith Thomas, a generation or so ago, wrote a book called Christianity is Christ. It's just Jesus. That's what salvation is what the Christian faith is. I don't even like the word Christianity. We're not talking about an itty or an ism. We're talking about a person, a faith in a person. I don't even like the word Christianity very much. So salvation is Jesus the person. Salvation is by grace. And Paul explains here, because all these wonderful things are given to you, says Paul, because by grace you have been saved. And grace is God's free willingness to bless us, though we, are, we deserve the very opposite. We don't deserve anything. Not only do we not deserve anything, we deserve the opposite. We, we deserve to be, to, to be abandoned and God would have put us into hell. He wouldn't be dealing with us unjustly. We deserve the very opposite of any kind of blessing. But um, God deals with us in grace. It's so amazing, you can hardly, you can hardly grasp it. We're so uh, commercial and uh, uh, so we're so sort of uh, gripped with the idea of deserving things that we can hardly grasp hold of the freeness of our 
of how God deals with us. You remember how in the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son goes into a far country and uh, makes a mess of his life and he ends up eating the, the food that the pigs were eating. And then he, he decides he wants to go back to the father and he wants to, to know his father again. Only he's, he's very, uh, he comes with a bit of a bargaining spirit. He says, well, I'll go to my father and I'll say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, but I, but I, I, know, I, I know I can't come back just as your son, but let, let, me, let me work for you. Uh, make me as one of your hired servants. He wants to, as he will, bargain his way back and uh, say, well, I know, I know I don't deserve to come back, but if I work for you and I become a servant, at least, at least you could do that for me. And he's, as it were, taking a kind of low position. He had no hope of being a son. He, he's, 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 not, he's not thinking of anything as wonderful as that. But the most he can do is just bargain his way back to some kind of inferior worker. At least that would be better, better than eating pig's food. And so he's coming with this bargaining spirit, prepared a little speech. I'll say unto my father, he's got a little speech all prepared, all lined up in his head as to what he's going to say. But when, he's, when, he, when he comes back, his father is already out there. When he is a, yet a long way off, his father sees him. The father's already waiting, even, even before the son does any kind of a bargaining to get his position back. The father's already there, already waiting, and he runs. Old men don't run, but this one does. This old man runs when he sees his son and throws his arms around him and the son begins his little speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. No longer worthy to be called your son. And he's just about to say, he's just about to say, make me one of your hired servants. But you'll notice he never gets to it. Before the son can ever say, let me, let me earn your way back. Let me, be a, let me work for you, if nothing else. Before he ever can get to that point, we read that the father throws his arms around him and uh, the father interrupts and calls his servant, bring quickly, there's nothing to be done, this can happen now, immediately, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger, put shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf and get it, let's, let's eat and celebrate, my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost, he's found, and they're celebrating and having a party. The son never ever did get to the point where he argues how much he can sort of earn his way back. The father's not interested in that. He runs, he embraces him immediately. There's no preparation. The son's got to do before the party can start. Immediately the father is throwing a party. My son is dead. That's grace. It's pure grace. There's not one single thing the son needs to do. And all his little planned preparations to earn his way back, they're all unnecessary. The father's there for him anyway, no matter what he has done and where he is. We're actually saved by doing nothing. This, the scandal of the gospel is that we're saved by doing nothing. What Paul says, to him who does nothing, Romans chapter 4 verse 3, to him who does nothing, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. He does not, he's ungodly, he does nothing about his ungodliness, he's ungodly, he does nothing but he believes in one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Paul actually says we're saved by doing nothing. We're ungodly. And we do nothing that actually compensates for that. God will change us, but we do nothing that actually compensates. And our faith in Jesus is just reckoned to us as righteousness. 
I was in India once preaching and uh, preaching on God's grace, and I felt I was getting absolutely nowhere. I felt these uh, Indian people listening to me, a few hundred of them, open air meeting in Chirichi uh, Rupelli, and I felt I was getting absolutely nowhere. Uh, they, were not, they, they could not believe that salvation was free. They just could not believe that there was, God was willing to do something absolutely free. And I was trying to uh, persuade them, but not, feeling I wasn't getting anywhere. And I was wearing a very cheap little watch. So finally, I, I said to them, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Tonight, I'm going to give away my watch. And I took my watch off and said, I said, anybody here that wants a watch, you can have it. I'm giving my watch away tonight. No one moved. Uh, there was no response whatsoever. I said, come on, no, I'm serious. There's someone here who needs a watch, and I'm going to give it to you. You're totally free. I carried on for a couple of minutes trying to persuade someone who no one would move. And finally, a woman got up and ran to the front and grabbed the watch and went. And I said, see, she's got a watch tonight. Why didn't you come? She's got a free watch, but, you, but why didn't you come? The reason why you didn't come is you couldn't believe I was seriously giving something to you free. You thought, was there some trick in me? Somebody, you know, did he really mean it? You could not believe that something could be totally free. But I want to tell you, that's what God does. Salvation is totally free. And so on. Mind you, at the end, at the end, of, the, at the end of the meeting, the woman came back to me and she said, did you really mean it? <laughs> And I said, yeah, I meant it. You can have it. <laughs> we find it so hard to believe that something is totally free. But it is. It's, God is deadly serious, very serious. And, uh, and you can hardly take it in how free God's grace is. And, and it can't be lost. How, how can you lose something where the, the, the contribution is, is zero? If, if it's contribution is zero, how can you lose it? It, it is inevitable. When something is free, it can't be lost because it's by definition free. You don't, you, if you don't have to qualify, you can't, you can't fail to qualify. If there's no, if the qualification is zero, well, how, can you, how can you possibly lose it? Therefore, ever, I give them eternal life. There, they, they own it, it belongs to them. And they shall never perish, says Jesus. Salvation is radically and seriously free, so much so. The great Charles Spurgeon said, I don't know whether you will understand this, but if you, if you could follow what he said, he said this. He said, he said faith is easy. Faith, faith is difficult, but it's difficult because it's easy. Can you follow that? Faith is difficult, but it's difficult because it's easy. What he meant is, it is so free that you really struggle to believe that it can be so free. Faith is difficult, but it's difficult because it's easy. It is so free, you can hardly believe it can be as free as that. But it is. Salvation is utterly and totally free. And the New Testament is always putting it that way. Jesus will face the most terrible people, the woman caught in adultery, the tax, Matthew, the tax collector, these people, and he just invites them. There's, there's, actually, there's nothing required on their side. He just says, come as you are. And they come, and immediately God blesses them and saves them. So faith is in a person, Jesus. Faith and salvation is by grace. It's more free than most of us can even cope with. And it is through faith. And faith itself is not, is not doing something. Faith is just uh, putting out an empty hand, 
faith is like a, a beggar on the street of Nairobi. He just puts out his hand as you're going by. He sees you, you rich European guys coming by. And he puts out an empty hand and he says, Shilingi Moja, just, just give me a shilling, Shilingi Moja. He's trusting you to give him a shilling. That's all faith is. It is putting out an empty hand and reckoning God's going to give you something. It's just the means by which you, 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 you get it. It's not a thing you deserve. It's not a, a big uh, uh, contribution that you're making in order for God to save you. It's just uh, putting out an empty hand, just uh, receiving. The reformers, people like Luther and Calvin, used to talk about passive faith. It's passive. It's just uh, seeing that uh, God is giving you something and, and laying hold of it. But it's passive a question, a doctrinal question that comes up, and I, I want to share it with you, is how much, it, could, it, could it be that uh, anything is an inseparable part of saving faith? Could, it, could anything be included in faith? So when the Bible says we're saved by faith, it's a little bit more than it might sound, because something else is, as it were, included. Um, and there are three things that people sometimes want to, as it were, include in faith. One is baptism. That, uh, yeah, salvation is by faith, but in, in faith you've got to be baptized. There's no salvation without baptism. And baptism is somehow smuggled into faith. So that you're saved by faith alone. Oh, yeah, but faith alone is, is, is got to be expressed in baptism, otherwise it's not faith. And there's smuggled baptism into faith. And uh, people that believe that. They put faith, they put baptism in faith. They're still willing to say you're saved by faith only, but uh, they smuggled baptism into faith. Well, I would think that's a mistake. In Scripture, baptism is not part of faith. It is the expression of faith. It is the way in which you show that you believe. You do something which shows that you're believing. But it's not faith itself. And uh, Old Testament saints were saved without baptism. Abraham was justified. Abraham is the model believer. We're saved in the same way Abraham is saved. He just believed God and that was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't baptized. The Old Testament saints weren't baptized. And the model of salvation is, is Abraham. I know someone in the evangelical world here in Britain who will say that was true then but it's not true now. That Abraham could be saved by faith only, but we do need to be baptized. It is a strange thing to say. That's, that's saying that salvation gets harder as time goes on. It's easier for Abraham than it was for us. Uh, now, now there's more involved. Um, well, all that's nonsense. No, no. Old Testament, Abraham had nothing. He was a moon worshipper from Ur of the Chaldees, and God stepped into his life and gave him promises. Abraham believed. That's all he did. Abraham believed God, and that, just, just believing, and that was reckoned to him for righteousness. That's, that's the teaching about Abraham. And Abraham is the model. We are children of Abraham, says the Bible. So you mustn't put baptism into salvation. And um, in the scriptures, people like the thief on the cross is saved without baptism. He say, Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's only believing. He doesn't get down from, from being crucified and go get baptized somewhere. Um, there, are, there are people who are saved and, and given the Spirit before they're baptized. Remember Acts chapter 10, preaching to Cornelius, and the Spirit falls, and Peter says, well, you know, we better baptize them. How can, we, how can we refuse water to those who've received the Spirit, just as we did? They come to faith, and they receive the Spirit before they were baptized. And, uh, and also, I think we may use the 
experiential argument. We may say, well, well I, we may say, as I, as I indeed can say, well, I was saved before I got baptized. If, if you've experienced salvation and you've not been baptized, nobody will ever convince you that baptism is part of salvation because you knew anyway. And, uh, and that, this will be an even more weird doctrine if you believe that baptism is by immersion. If when you say baptism is essential to salvation, you mean immersion, man, we're all in trouble. Augustine wasn't immersed. Luther wasn't immersed. Billy Graham, I think he was a Baptist. Billy Graham's wife was a Presbyterian. She wasn't immersed. John Stott wasn't immersed. Martin Lloyd-Jones wasn't. I mean, all the greatest saints of history, uh, only, only sort of half of them ever went through any kind of believer's baptism. You say salvation is by baptism, and, and you mean believer's baptism, you're writing off three-quarters of the, ch- of the church including all of its greatest spiritual giants. It's only been quite recent, I would think, in the history of the church, it's only been quite recently that the majority of people who are saved get baptized by immersion. I think that's true now. I don't think it was true 50 years ago. As, as the gospel spread to other nations, believers' baptism has been part of it. But um, before about 1950, I would think most Christians had not actually been baptized. If, if you think of baptism as being a, a big thing by immersion as a believer, this sprinkling as a baby, if you don't regard that as baptism, then most people were in fact not baptized. So you, re- you really have a problem, and, and Salvation Army people don't get baptized. You mean no Salvation Army person ever goes to heaven? Quakers don't get baptized. You, you mean no Quaker ever gets saved? It, experientially, it's a very difficult doctrine to withhold. No, no. So baptism is the expression of faith. When you get saved, you express it. You say, well, I'm going I'm to tell you, I'm believing, I'm telling anyone who wants to know, I'm telling God, I'm telling myself, I'm expressing my faith. And I'm expecting God to bless me because I'm expressing my faith. It's the expression of faith. It is not part of faith. And you can be saved without being baptized. I'm not saying you should be, but uh, you can be, and I was. So I was t- ten years after I got saved, I got baptized. But... Uh, I grew up as an Anglican, never changed my mind for many years. So for 10 years of my Christian life, I wasn't baptized. I was preaching, people being saved. I knew the power of the Holy Spirit, but I hadn't been baptized. And uh, that can happen. So the, experience, the, the experiential argument comes into that, I believe. And then the, the question arises, well, how much of works must be put in faith? You know, faith without works is dead. People quote that verse, they, they love James 2.14. Uh, faith without works is dead, and how can you be saved? And this, and this is well, how can you be justified? Can a, can a person be justified by faith only? So it says, um, and that faith save him. And they, they love that verse. It's the only verse they can quote. Uh, they, they love that verse so much that there's no other one quite like it. Um, and maybe it doesn't mean quite what they think it means. How much of works is in faith? Well. You expect faith to lead to something. Ephesians chapter 2 that, that, that I'm quoting says we are created for good works, saved by grace through, through faith, uh, and we're not doing it. God is the one who's doing something. He is creating us. It's not the result of works. We are his workmanship. He's doing the working. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So faith is for good works. It's setting us up for good works. It's expecting to lead into good works. If you tell me you believe and it does nothing in your life, well, I'll be a bit suspicious about your faith. But um, so, so that's true, that faith is designed to lead us into a godly life. But the good work, again, I would say, what I just said about baptism, that the, the good works are not in the faith itself. Faith is 
before good works and without good works. We're simply putting our trust in Jesus. And uh, you don't put any good works in faith. The, the Bible speaks of the obedience of faith. And I don't think that means the obedience that consists of faith. Could, could do, could take it that way, but uh, I don't think that's the best way to take it. Surely it means the obedience that comes from faith, the obedience that arises from faith. And when you find yourself being not obedient, you look at yourself and you think, well, I don't think I'm obeying the Lord very much. You know, I think, I think I'm a bit of a backslider. And you feel that way about yourself. Well, the question, the way in which you handle yourself is you say, well, what do I believe? Do I believe I'm born again? Do I believe the Spirit is in me? Do I believe the power of God is at work in my life? Do I believe that if anything I sow, I'll reap the, the, the results? What do I believe? And surely that will say, well, no, I must, I must surrender my life to God. Surely what you do comes out of what you believe. So, so obedience comes out of faith. It proves faith. Although I don't think one should be um, too heavy at any one point. I mean, surely all of us have done something we ought not to have done. If faith has good works all the time, well, sometimes then we're not saved. Because sometimes there's not much good works in our lives. Don't we all have down periods? Maybe, maybe your people are so holy that maybe you don't have these problems. But uh, surely in any particular one point, you may say, well, faith will produce good works. Well, uh, in the long run, yeah, I believe it does. But at any one point, does that have to be true? Is there no such thing as a backslider? Do you not find Christians who wander far from the, from the, from the Lord, but they're still saved? They still know the gospel is true. They're still, they're still trusting in Jesus after a fashion. It's just that they're being so inconsistent. They've wandered far from God. That can happen. So even the idea, well, you can't have faith without works, well, it might be true in the long run, but whether it's true at any particular point, surely the New Testament's full of Christians who are inconsistent, Peter cursing and swearing, and yet Jesus said to him, Peter, Satan's desire to test you, but I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. The one thing Jesus' intercession does while Peter is cursing and swearing is he's not stopped believing. He knows the gospel's true. So you mustn't use faith produces good works as a kind of legalistic thing to condemn yourself as not being saved when you go through times of inconsistency. In the long run, I believe it's true. And you tell me someone's saved but never in any way touched their lives, I'll be a bit suspicious of that kind of faith. But um, don't overemphasize that or make it a thing that, that uh, throws everybody out of the kingdom, including yourself. Don't, don't handle it that way. And a faith is passive faith. It's seeing that Jesus died for you, trusting him. There's a, bit, there's a bit of knowledge in it. You know he's the saviour. There's a bit of conviction in it. You are convinced this is, this is true. It's not just a, a kind of intellectual understanding of something. You are convinced about it. And you are trusting this saviour. That's faith. Mind you, you don't have to analyse it evangelistically. You don't have to say to, to, to the unconverted person, well, you must have some knowledge, you must have some uh, conviction, you must have some, some trust. But don't analyze it eva- evangelistically. It's true, but don't use the fact. No, no, just tell people, believe. They know what believing is. You don't need to analyze it. Just tell them, believe in Jesus, trust him, commit your life to him. But they know what that means. You don't have to, as it were, overanalyze it. So salvation is by faith. There may not be much good works there to begin with. It would, you expect it to generate a change of life. Salvation is by faith. Baptism may not be part of it. And then the question arises, and it has arisen in, in um, 
history of the church, and I think it's an important subject now, as to how much sort of feeling is in faith, how much uh, emotion is in faith, how much conviction of sin is in faith. And uh, there's a very interesting movement, I, I don't like it, but it's, it's uh, of importance, I believe. There was a very interesting movement in the, I'm trying to think of the exact date, I think it was the late 18th century, by a man whose name was, or the, the key man, his name was Robert Sanderman, although he was the son-in-law of a man called Glass, G-L-A-S, and the movement began in Scotland, which was called the Glassites, and in England, that's generally known as Sandemanianism. And Robert Sandeman <coughs> held the view that the, the Methodist revival was, was too emotional, that um, the preachers were, were sort of preaching emotionally and they were wanting people to be convicted of sin and they were really uh, demanding a certain level of... Uh, conviction and emotion. And maybe there was some truth in what he said, but he was, he was uh, a great enemy of people like Wesley and uh, the great preachers of the evangelical revival, William, William uh, what's his name? The guy at Haworth, I've forgotten his name now. And uh, Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and, and their, their colleagues, he felt that they were demanding sort of emotion and uh, demanding that we should express uh, conviction, and there should be tears, and we should be terrified, we should come under the law, which was the phrase they used. Um, so he kind of had a special doctrine of faith. His doctrine of faith was no, it was simply knowing that the gospel is true. It's pure, an intellectual thing. You just believe the record. His, his favorite verse was Romans chapter 10. If we believe that Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead, we're saved. That, that was his view of faith. It is merely believing something intellectually. You just, see, you just know this is true. You know Jesus is the Lord. You know that he was raised from the dead. And that in itself is saving. So faith becomes uh, accepting some facts. It's not much more than that. It doesn't have to have any kind of feeling or emotion in it. And, uh, and for a while, Sandemanianism, that kind of teaching, was very popular for a little while. It, it, it uh, didn't last very long, but uh, for a while people said, yeah, you're right, you know, we're demanding too much conviction, we're demanding um, too much uh, intensity, and we're preaching too emotionally. We should be a bit more uh, objective. We don't, we don't need uh, this emotion. It's uh, just as we're not justified by works, just as we're not justified by baptism, equally we're not justified by emotion, and, and there's some truth in that. And so it became quite um, powerful in the story of the later stage of the Methodist awakening. And the great name in this connection is a man by, by the name of Christmas Evans. Have you ever heard of Christmas Evans? He was uh, one of the greatest preachers. He was an ugly-looking guy. He only had one eye. He was blind in one eye. Terribly ugly-looking guy. Uh, but he was, the most powerful, he was the most powerful preacher in late... 18th century Wales. And, and Christmas Evans got uh, caught up with this uh, Sandemanian teaching that faith has got no, uh, no uh, conviction in it. But it damaged him. He, he lost his power as a preacher, as a revival, and uh, for, for 10 years or so he was in a kind of barren wilderness. And then one day he came to see that he'd made a mistake and that uh, 
there was more conviction in preaching that he was realizing, and he kind of repented of his of his uh, adopting this Sandemanian view of faith. And as he cleared this Sandemanian view of faith out of his life, the power of God came back into his life. His preaching was empowered again. Sandemanians don't like preaching. They, they want to debate. You see, if, you, if something is purely intellectual, you don't preach, you debate. You just discuss the intellectual issues involved. all you do. Sandemanians don't like preaching. Uh, they want debating and so on. And uh, and so eventually people began to reply to Sandemanianism. Sandemanianism. Uh, one of the greater replies to it was, was by a man called Thomas Fuller. Some, some of the Latter-day Baptists replied to uh, Robert Sandeman, and people came back to the ordinary view of faith again. But it, raises, it does raise the question how much uh, intensity and emotion and feeling is, is in uh, faith. And the answer is, I think, that we have to have a, a kind of balanced position. You must not act as though people have to go through a certain emotional experience in order to be saved. Um, you, must, you mustn't require that people are not saved unless they have kind of some kind of Damascus Road experience where they're knocked to the ground the way the Apostle Paul was, or they, they have to weep, or they have to sort of roll upon the ground before they're really saved. Um, and I was pastor of Nairobi Baptist Church many years ago, which was absolutely... We were initially in a building that was too small for us, and uh, the congregation was 2,000, but the building would only hold 500. So we had to squeeze people in two or three times and be a couple of hundred outside trying to get in. But uh, the common saying in Nairobi in those days was, there's no way of getting saved in Nairobi Baptist Church. In Nairobi Baptist Church, you can't get saved because there's no way of getting saved. What they meant was it was so crowded that I couldn't call people to the front. You, could, you couldn't even move. And uh, you couldn't just be knocked on the ground to roll upon the floor. So people say, there's no way of being saved in that church. But you see, the idea is you can't be saved unless, unless you come forward and someone prays for you and you clap on the ground and, and, and God, God, God uh, sort of zaps you and then you're saved. And if there's no room for it, then you can't be saved. That was the uh, prob- a problem I had in Nairobi Baptist. Nowadays they've built themselves a big sanctuary, so they don't have that problem. But, um, but you see, you do get certain, type, certain uh, situations, and it's a bit like that in Kenya, where people don't feel you've been saved unless you come under a certain uh, level of conviction of sin or unless, you, unless you've really uh, been in despair. You know the date, you know the exact day when you got saved, and otherwise you're not saved at all. Uh, they have this kind of uh, heavy emphasis on experience uh, that almost makes salvation to be justification by emotion or justification by what you go through or justification by rolling on the floor. This, that, that's not right. And just as you get people who are dramatically saved, you get people who are very undramatically saved. I was very undramatically saved. You ask me how I got saved, I don't even know. I can tell you one month I wasn't saved, and one month later I was. Exactly what point I crossed the line, I don't even know. All I know is I arrived there. I don't know how I got there, but I arrived there somehow. Um, and I mean, my, my, I have a son called Calvin, and he can't remember how he got saved, although I can. Uh, when he was a four-year-old boy, he got sick, and he said, Daddy, can I play with your tape recorder? I said, yeah, all right, what do you want to listen to? He said, I want to listen to that tape on Jesus dying upon the cross. And then he played it, and he said, can I hear it again? Uh, and, and I said, yeah, all right. And he, played, he listened to that tape all day. It totally transformed his life. He was never the same again. Uh, and he was saved just by endlessly hearing the story of Jesus on the cross. He can't remember that. Uh, he was only about four. He, he can't remember it. Uh, all he can say is, I never, I never know a day in my life when I didn't trust in Jesus. That's, that, that would be his testimony. He can't remember how he got saved. 
I can remember. There was a before, a definite day, and an after. I can remember it, but he can't. Um, so you, you, you can cross the line. I mean, the Bible says John the Baptist was filled with, his, filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. I doubt whether he could remember it. Uh, you, you, you can get saved sort of infancy. Um, and you can get saved slowly. You, you just get interested, and, and then one day you know that you believe, but you, can't, you don't know the exact time when you cross the line. <coughs> it's all right, it doesn't matter. And you mustn't people, get people to say, well, you're not saved then because you didn't go through this and this and this. You mustn't make, let people, as it were, standardize a kind of experience that you've got to go through before you're saved. So on the one side, you mustn't uh, make any sort of experience or level of emotion something that you must go through. Otherwise, you're not saved. You must not do that. But on the other hand, I don't think Sandemanianism is right either. Because in the, when, when you're told that you are dead in trespasses and sins, when you're told that, that uh, you, are, you are a slave of Satan and you're a child of wrath and God has stepped into your life and quickened you, can you believe that without it sort of touching your heart? Can you really believe these things? And Sandeman didn't take much notice of the word heart. It says, you believe with the heart. That verse he loved so much, he didn't notice the word heart. In other words, when you believe, you're believing, you're not just believing with the head or the mind or the intellect, you're believing with the heart. Something is gripping you, it's convicting you. And there's always going to be some feelings in that. So, is, is emotion a part of faith? Well, no, no sort of level of experience or emotion or, or a kind of standardized experience is necessarily a part of faith. And people can get very, say, very simply. I like the story of George Muller. Have you, have you ever read the story of the famous George Muller, the man who pioneered orphanages in Bristol? He was an unconverted theological student. His father pushed him into ministerial training. He wasn't saved. And he lived a wild, deceitful life. And he had a friend, and they, they lived this wild life together. But the friend was actually a Christian who'd backslidden. He was, he was far from the Lord, but he was, he was saved. And one day, Muller's wild friend was restored and came back to the Lord. And uh, so now they were in trouble because Muller was living this wild life and his friend had been restored. And one night, his friend said to him, you know, I want to take you to a meeting. Will you, will you come to me to this meeting I go to? And Muller said, yeah, all right. And George Muller was... Uh, taken to a little brethren meeting, the Plymouth Brethren or the Christian Brethren, and they were in Germany and France as well. So they were, he, he was taken to this uh, little meeting of the brethren, as they call it, in Germany. And he loved it. He just loved it. He said, I don't know what, I've never known anything like, like this. I want to come back. And, uh, and clearly that night he was saved. But he was saved so sort of sweetly and gently. There was, there was no in, immense conviction of sin. He just goes to a meeting. Immediately he knows this is where he wants to be. And, and his life is never the same again. Many years later, he went through greater challenges. And he would say, the day came when I died to George Muller and everything he stands for. Well, that wasn't his conversion. That was many years down the road. And his conversion, he just sort of comes very, very easily into knowing this is true, this is what I want, and he's immediately saved. Uh, even that very nice, he's saved. You can be saved in a very sweet and uh, easy way. It doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. It doesn't matter what your story is as long as you know right now you're putting your faith in Jesus. You may not even remember how you got to where you are. It doesn't matter as long as you do know that you put your faith in Jesus.
But I especially emphasize it for this reason. I believe that we live in an age that has been, uh, maybe it's changing, but we live in an age that has been very Sandemanian. Um, I would say that mainstream evangelicalism over the last hundred years has just said, well, believe this doctrine, believe this teaching, uh, and you're saved. It's been very propositional. You get saved by believing a little bit of intellectual teaching. Then you fall away. People say, well, no, I think he lost his salvation. Or or, or I I think of the ministry of people like Francis Schaeffer. I'm an an admirer of Francis Schaeffer, or the the late Francis Schaeffer. Um, But you see, his method was in in Labrie in Switzerland, his method was to take... uh, pagan young men brought up in modern philosophy and sort of argue with them and reason with them and and discredit their philosophy and tell them, no, no, you must believe in the Christian faith. Um, Which is called apologetics. We use the word apologetics for defending the gospel and intellectually convincing people that there's good arguments for believing in the gospel. Well, Apologetics can be very Sandemanian, and people like Josh, Josh McDowell, if I've got that name right, uh, where you sort of give all the evidences and you intellectually convince people. Um, it's a bit Sandemanian. And even the Billy Graham Crusades, you know, when, when the great Billy Graham Crusades were here in the 1950s, the Haringey Crusade of 54 and the Wembley Crusade of 56, I think it was, um, they would boast in how much in how little emotion there was. They were saying, this is not emotionalism, and the, the Billy Graham team were very uh, eager to, to persuade the public that there was nothing emotional about those great, great crusades. No, no, they listen, they come up very quietly, and there's no emotion, and they just uh, walk forward, I want you to get up out of your seats, and you just make a cool, calm decision, no emotion, and the Billy Graham team would actually boast that there's no emotion. Well, I'm an admirer of Billy Graham as, a, as I'm an admirer of Francis Schaeffer. But even the people we admire are not infallible. We can all make mistakes. And the thought of boasting that you get saved without emotion is a load of all nonsense. You think, you think Paul had no emotion on the Damascus Road? You, you think that, that Matthew, the tax collector, who, who throws up his whole life and follows Jesus, you think there was no warmth of feeling there? Can, can you know that you're a sinner without having some kind of a movement of the heart? To, to boast in there being no emotion. When revival is breaking up, people are, people are rolling upon the ground under conviction or they're, or they're crying or they're weeping. I'm not saying they have to. I'm not saying it's a standardized procedure that they've got to go through. I don't believe that. But are you telling me that when the gospel is preached in power that there's no feeling or emotion? That, that's a lot of all nonsense. And the Sand- as I've already said, the Sandemanians always believe in debating. They, they want to they argue with you and convict you and bring you intellectually. Which reminds me of um, a man, I want to remember his name. I'm trying to remember the name of, of an atheist that's just uh, decided he believes in God. When I was a student many years ago, I read the writings of a certain man whose name skipped my memory, who, whose book on atheism was famous. He wrote, he wrote a book called Essays in Philosophical Theology. I remember reading it as a, as a teenager. but I did, I did things like that when I was in my teens. But... Um, so he's, he's spent his whole life being a kind of debater. He's a, kind of, he's a bit of a Richard Dawkins guy. He debates atheism. But uh, that man whose name will come back to me in a moment has suddenly decided that, that he believes there's a God after all. He's now, he's now in his 80s. No, he was, he was the professor of philosophy at Reading, but his name uh, has slipped my memory. But um, it doesn't matter. Uh, 
But um, he's recently changed his mind. And he says, no, no, I've come to the conclusion that there is a God. He still doesn't believe in the resurrection. He doesn't believe in life after death. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him when he dies. There's no faith in Jesus. But he says, no, no, I think the argument's for God that there's a God. That's, I mean, actually quite, quite good. I've changed my mind. He spends, he spends 60 years persuading him there's no God and changes his mind when he's retired at 80. But uh, he's still not saved. He's just intellectually come to think, well, maybe the arguments for God are, are quite good after all. But that's not conversion. That's not, that's not saving faith. You, you can grow up. You can grow up as a child in a Christian family and believe everything your parents believe, but still not be born again. That's not conversion. Conversion is when Jesus becomes real to you. Conversion is when your heart is pierced. When you cry, "What must I do?" Like the people on their Pentecost. And um, I, I could even trace the history of, of the last uh, 50 years or so in evangelicalism. You see, back in the 1930s and 1940s, it was unheard of for Bible-believing Christians to be in any university post. Uh, no, no evangelical, no Bible-believing Christian ever got high honours in any theological degree. I think the first person ever, in, in modern times, the first person ever to get a first-class honours in theology in a British university was John Stott. He went and got a first-class honours in modern languages and theology. The first lecturer who ever had any kind of academic position in a British university in theology who was a Bible-believing Christian was Professor F.F. F. Bruce. And he was a lecturer in classics in Greek. And he got into the New Testament department by making a, an internal transfer from the classics department to the, the New Testament department. He got in through the back door. It was unheard of for any... Uh, evangelical to uh, get into any kind of academic position. And so groups like the IVF, the InterVarsity Fellowship, began to say, well, no, we intellectuals, we've got to study, we've got to get into universities, we've got to be uh, academically trained, and we've got to defend our faith. And they founded the Tyndale, Tind, uh, Tyndale, 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 not Tyndale Hall, Tyndale House in Cambridge, where I went. I was a, I was a scholar in Tyndall House for a year with a scholarship from IVF. But, um, but you see, now, 50 years have gone by, and there are, there are Bible-believing Christians in all, of the university, in all of the New Testament faculties all over Britain. They've got Bible-believing Christians in them, except that they don't have any spiritual power. They're now full of intellectual arguments, and they've and they sort of captured the university world, and we write these big fat tomes about uh, great big gigantic uh, Bible commentaries. It didn't exist 50 years ago, but, but nobody reads them. Uh, and if you, if, if, you, if you did read them, you could understand them. They're all, heavy, uh, they're all sort of heavy and learned, and one scholar, he's really writing for another scholar. He's not writing for the church. And uh, you can't understand them. You can't afford them either. They're there for £40, £50, £60 a volume. I mean, who, who can go out and buy that with your, with your pocket money? So nobody can afford it. Nobody can understand it. All they do is write books for each other. Is that victory? I mean, have, have we got anywhere? What's the use of that? And uh, the world we live in is, is very sort of argumentative, and especially the Western world. I, I noticed in all the churches I go to in Europe that they only talk about sort of convey, convincing people and uh, producing the arguments and replying to Richard Dawkins and, and all these intellectual debate. It's not what saves people. You can be a brilliant arguer. It doesn't save anybody. And in the... Uh, I was referring last night to the late, the early 18th century when it seemed as though the Christian faith was disappearing. And so Bishop Butler would write his big books, The Analogy of Religion. People would write these defensive books trying to defend the faith. They did nothing. Didn't touch things at all. Until people like Wesley and Whitfield were baptised with the Spirit. 
And then within days, people, within days, people were getting saved. The very moment people had spiritual power, conversions were taking place. The, the books didn't produce the conversions. And, um, and so on. We live in, in a, a world, and it, uh, it's, it's here, Britain, modern Britain Christianity is very Sandemanian. You just uh, take notes and you get Bible teaching and you read all the big books and you argue with all these atheists and you produce uh, reasons why you mustn't be a Muslim. It's all at the, at the uh, intellectual level. And when we're in evangelism, you come forward, say these words after me, I believe I'm a sinner, I receive Jesus, right, you're a Christian now. That's it, you recite these words, that saves you. It's all very Sandemanian. And um, maybe we'll come back to this tomorrow, we'll see. But, um, no, I hold the view is there's only one thing we need to do. Preach and proclaim a message directly, we use the word you, we say you, you were dead, you were walking, following the course of this world, but God, he's got an element of confrontation in it, (coughs) we're expounding the message, but we're not expounding it to the kind of intellectual system, we are preaching it to people's hearts, you crucified him, and the one that you crucified, God has highly exalted him, you must repent, you must get baptized, and God will forgive you, and he'll pour the spirit upon you, it's it's all all got this directness in it, It's it's not lecturing, it's preaching, the big difference between lecturing and preaching, there's too much lecturing going on, and even where people think they are doing expository preaching, you get people say, no we must expound scripture, we need expository preaching, Sometimes people can't tell the difference between expository preaching and expository lecturing. You go to, a, you go to some church and, and, and someone's expounding the Bible. Everybody's taking notes and, uh, and it's uh, all terribly uh, interesting. And uh, Mind you, you can't get those people witnessing on the streets. There's no prayer meeting in that. There's scarcely any prayer meeting in the church. It's a, a Bible teaching church, but it's, it's more like a university than a church. That's not the answer. Expository preaching is not expository lecturing. Preaching is when you're, you're trying to pierce people's hearts and, and there's an element of confrontation in it. It's not tidy. You don't even know what you're going to say. People, my, my brother here was asking me what I was going to speak on. And I said to him, I don't even know yet. I don't know yet. You, you don't know what the Spirit is going to do. If you have a tidy lecture and all your notes written out, you know exactly what you're going to say. Do you think Peter knew what he was going to say on the day of Pentecost? Was Peter saying, which well, day of Pentecost, you know, it's important day, I better, I, better, I better produce a good word this morning. You know, did, did he have it all written out in his manuscript? He didn't even know what was going to happen. And when revival comes, and I'm, I'm living for revival, when revival comes, you never know what's going to happen. Any, anything can happen, you have no idea. Or you can go to some places, as I have been, and you arrive on a Tuesday, there's an earthquake that night. What are you going to do the next morning? That wouldn't have to stay with looking at Romans. That's, that's not the answer. You must preach to where people are. And sometimes, sometimes even something will happen in the service. Uh, it happens in the Bible. Jesus is, is talking, and suddenly a man cries out, Bid my brother divide my inheritance to me, with, with me. And Jesus doesn't say, Deacons, let's, let's get rid of that guy. No, Jesus doesn't uh, escort him out of the crowd. He swings around and says, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He immediately relates to it. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he begins to tell, All these guys sending me SMSs at the moment, I'm preaching, keep quiet. All these, all these guys are interrupting Jesus, and he starts telling of the parable of the rich fool, and he goes on for about two or three chapters in Luke's Gospel. It's all unprepared because some guy has shouted out about something about money. 
He's totally unprepared. And preaching has something in it which is not prepared. I'm not saying preachers shouldn't prepare, they should, so I'm not saying that. But uh, you, know, you leave yourself open and things might happen in, in the church. I, I was at a conference once in, in uh, South Africa, conference on prayer. And uh, we had various sessions, and, and as we did just now, we had, we had a little break in one of the sessions, and the woman went off to the house, to, 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 a, to a little flat in the conference center, and she had a shower and so on, a bath. But she was an, ep- she was an epileptic. Um, and as she was in the bath, she had an epileptic fit, and she, she slipped under the water and she drowned. For 20 minutes, when we all came back, one of them had died. What do you do? You say, well, you know, we're talking about prayer, turn, turn to Ephesians. No, you can't do that. I mean, nobody, if you did, nobody would be listening to you. They've all got their, their mind on what's just happened. And these, these things happen when, when God is working. Things happen as you go along. No, no, our message is prepared, but in the occasion we, we leave ourselves free. I tell you what, on that occasion, I said, please turn your Bible to John, John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. No, no, if he who believes in me shall never die. And for an hour, I preached on what it's like to die, and it could have happened to you. And they were listening, I can tell you that. <laughs> if someone dies and you preach on what's happening, they listen. And, um, and so on. I can give, give you many examples of that. But, uh, and and you, you, you surely, we, we minister to the heart. So I'm still dealing with the nature of faith. It's not, it's not barely assenting to a proposition. That's the Catholic view of faith. The Catholic doctrine is just believe in the church. Never mind whether you understand, you know, the church will take care of your soul, we'll, we'll offer masses for you, and we'll, we'll give you ablution if you come to mass. Leave, leave your soul in the life of the, your, your, your soul in the, in the hands of the church. Just obey the priest and the system, and the system will get you to heaven. Might be a little bit of purgatory there on the way somewhere, but uh, the system will take care of you, and you assent to the teaching of the church. And that's not faith. faith. Faith is not assenting to the teaching of the church, not even the evangelical church, not even the Pentecostal church. It's not assenting to the teaching of the church. It's not, it's not even assenting to the Bible. It is, it is experiencing God pierce your heart with his words. And it may touch your emotions. I'm not exaggerating that, and I don't want to make a standardized uh, method that you have to go through. But uh, it, it must uh, touch you and t- touch your life. And in the, in the Bible, people, when they come to faith, they... they Convicted, they, they may cry out, they may weep, anything might happen. They may dance, anything might happen. They may not, but, it, but, but faith always touches us and it touches our heart. So that's, that's my view of faith, and I've said these things not because I think we should preach this every Sunday, but just to guard the teaching of faith. Faith is knowing that the Bible's true, it's being convicted and convinced that what it says to you is true. It is trusting, it is trusting and putting your whole belief into what God says to you. It's believing God, not believing in God, but believing God. When God speaks to you, you believe what he says. You respond, that's faith. And these are the three great big issues that arise.